0: Lord, we know that this book is for us and for your people, and that you have a word here for us, and how you are unfolding human history. Lord, we see that that all connects to Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is slain. And we recognize, Lord, that your spirit is still at work in the lives of the church before us, in the lives of us right now, and For all the saints that are to come and what they're going to experience, Lord, you are working right now to unfold your plan. So help us to see that with great confidence, and even if we can't have all of our answers uh, to all of our questions, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would guide us to the questions that you answer that matter from this text, that will nourish our souls in the gospel. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. There are two ways that one can go too far in understanding the book of Revelation. One way is that, uh, and some scholars do this, they just say that the whole thing is like a parable. It's like a vision that isn't actually attached to any sort of reality. But one of the things that I've been hopefully showing you throughout this uh, sermon series is that these visions do point to an ultimate reality that is true and unfolding in history. But another uh, way that we can go too far in understanding Revelation is that we can get too specific uh, and get too detailed in maybe how the book might apply today. And one example of this uh, latter tendency is to try from a book like Revelation to discover the exact date that Jesus is going to return. If you don't believe me this has happened throughout history and there was a recent time that this happened with a gentleman named Harold Camping predicting that Jesus would return on May 21st 2011. As you can see it didn't happen we're all still here right the, the world didn't wrap up and the new heavens and new earth was not ushered in so that didn't happen that was a, a Saturday that was supposed to happen May 21st of 2011. And since nothing happened, uh, he said, well, what really happened was it was a spiritual return, but the physical return was still to come. So then he adjusted his date for that physical real return to October 21st of 2011. And those of you that might have been in the Twin Cities, I think maybe other cities had this experience too, there were billboards that you, would saw, you saw throughout the city uh, that were advertising the reality of either May 21st or October, October 21st that this uh, return of Christ was going to happen. And apparently this particular religious leader had attempted this before, this source of discovery of the exact date. He did that as a guest back on September 6, 1994, was the other date that he predicted. So. He's not really good at this, right? This probably, you should probably find a different, you know, different occupation. Uh, this one's just not working out for him. Maybe just go like, like, do what I did for a while. Just like steam some milk and pour some espresso and maybe just call it a day, right? If you're, if you're Harold Camping, right? But he, 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 he didn't get it right. And one of the things I actually remember from this time, because we started this church Right around that time, we were about a year into it, and some of uh, the neighbor, actually right back here across the alley, I, and I can't remember if he did this on the May date or the October date, but he had this chair in the back alley that had clothing just laid out on it, like somebody was zapped out of it, right? Even like the empty shoes and everything just just hanging out there in the alleyway, uh, pointing to us, because he was aware of this prediction as well, because as you remember, the, uh, there were billboards all over the city, Uh, that were advertising this. So one of the things I want to do in this introduction is not so much just introduce the specific text today, but really try to introduce what we're going to try to do over the next several chapters, uh, chapter 6 through 20, and especially as we get into these sections of sevens, the seven seals, which is what we're going to look at today. There's seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls that are symbolic in these visions for various things that, uh, that uh, uh, John sees in these visions. As one thing that I've mentioned before, there are different views on how to understand these uh, groups of seven, seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. Some see them as visions of the future, others see them as something that's already happened in the past to the original readers of the book of Revelation, some see them as timeless truths, and others a mix of those views. And I think that the fact that when people read these visions and, and interpret them and study them, that they can see how it can apply to all those scenarios speaks to the power of these visions as a way to view a lot of everything that it happens throughout human history and to us. It's a view of everything, a lens that God's people have used to understand a lot of uh, human history. And as I go through these different visions of seven seals, trumpets, and bowls, I'm not going to get into all the different types of details on how to interpret it one way or the other. One of the things I'm hoping to do is really preach on the theology that is present in all of these visions so that you can see maybe the theological questions that are being asked with each one of these visions and how each vision is trying to answer those theological uh, questions, And I think in that way you can kind of get wrapped up in the vision itself in a good way to try, to try to picture this happening to you, that you're in John's skin a little bit and this is a vision that you get caught up in and maybe what that would have li- been like to experience it uh, kind of independent of these bigger questions that God's people sometimes ask. And I want to remind you, as we said in the first sermon of this series, that this type of literature in the Bible that that Revelation is, the main point of this type of literature is to unmask the world so that we can see it from God's perspective in heaven. And that's what each one of these visions is trying to do. So regardless of when these events are going to take place or if they already have taken place, and I do have opinions on these things, we've got to remember that the main point of every one of these things is to, to show us as God's people that this is God's perspective on things and to mask these things for what they really are. A couple more introductions to these groups of seven, uh, just to get us started. Each one of them follows this formula of 4-2. Uh, so there's four things that happen, a trumpet or uh, breaking seals, and then there's another two that are kind of clustered together. And then there's an interlude, and sometimes it's quite long, this kind of pause between uh, the last thing happening and the second-to-last thing happening. And seven, in the book of Revelation, as I've already mentioned, symbolizes completion. And that that we have three groups of seven is an emphasis of an ultimate expression of something. And so the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls, as one scholar says, is quote, describes the complete, perfect erasure of evil. And that's what we're going to see in the chapters to come. Each of these sevens restates similar themes, but sometimes with different emphasis, and all of them end with God's judgment at the end. But there's also kind of an unfolding narrative that connects all of them together as well. So they're not just independent visions, but they're connected and intertwined. And you can see that God's judgment with each one of these series is is getting more intense as it builds towards this big confrontation that's going to end uh, the book of Revelation followed by the New creation in chapters 21 to 22. Uh, one scholar said it best to not see these clusters of seven as divided into three neat tidy parts nor to exclusively see them as a chronology but it's almost like an artistic expression like a song where each part is unique connected and builds off one another like a verse of a song that's continuing to build and be connected. So here we go, picking up from last week where we saw this heavenly vision of God's throne room and the slain lamb next to it, where the the slain lamb, Christ, takes the scroll from God's hand and he's about to snap seven different seals off that scroll. The scroll represented God's purposes and judgment. This is about to unfold and that's what we get into in the vision today with Christ opening these seals. So let's get into it. First, starting with four horsemen, all right? Gird your loins, brothers and sisters, here we go. Verses 1 to 2. I watched as the lamb opened up the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So after the lamb opens the first seal, a commanding voice says, come. And the first of these four horsemen appear in the vision. And this thunderous voice means that the heavenly creature is speaking on behalf of God. And this phrase of of God telling the horsemen to come and Jesus breaking the seal is repeated uh, throughout this passage. The first horseman is riding a white horse and holding a bow and wearing a crown. This particular horseman is described as a warrior bent on conquest. And this horseman isn't to be confused with Christ, who later in the book of Revelation also rides a white horse, although those similarities might point to how the horseman's ability is to deceive the church. But this, in context, this horseman is bad. All these horsemen are bad. There's some discussion whether all four horsemen are evil powers, spiritual powers, or they're simply symbolic of human depravity. And for me, it's hard to untangle those two in the book of Revelation because when someone considers the brokenness of the world, uh, both are intertwined, that there are indeed very real spiritual powers that influence our flesh and bring out the worst of sinful tendencies out of humanity. Nonetheless, each horseman does represent an aspect of evil and depravity that is true of the broken world to come and what is true throughout human history. And so this first horseman on the white horse points to the evil and depravity of subjecting others through force. This might happen when one nation overtakes another, but it also happens in everyday life, like in work, or the economy, when somebody uses power influence to run over a coworker to get ahead. This is what the horseman represents. And then we have the second one, verses 3 through 4. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. So this is a red horse, and the person on it has a large sword, and red represents blood, and with the sword, the horseman takes peace by getting people to violently turn on one another, even to the point of killing one another. This is a picture of not only civil war, but any of the wicked and creative ways that humanity makes somebody into a different group to, to justify violence and injustice towards that other group. And it's really important to note that throughout the book of Revelation, this language of killing or some translations will say slaying is specifically applied to Christians and those who violently oppose Christians because of their belief in Christ. We have another horseman in verses 5 through 6, when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. There's a lot of things going on here. This horse is a, a horseman is on a black horse with a pair of scales and black represents mourning and grief and the scales are connected with the sayings that were at the end there about weighing life's essentials to see how much that they cost. Although there is some restraint in the goods that are pictured here in this text, the main picture here is showing the situation of prices are going up but only for the same amount of food. It's a picture of scarcity and rationing of food because of a famine, and people are barely getting by on the bare essentials. That's the picture here. And famines, of course, can be due to climate, but it's also due because of violence of conquest and war, which is the context here. Evil and depravity make just getting by difficult, especially when specific groups are targeted by violence. Verses 7 through 8, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice from the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So the fourth rider is on a pale horse and the rider's name is Death and and following Death like a foot soldier is Hades which is a word in scripture that means the realm of the dead and the horseman is given this power to bring death to the earth through sword and famine and wild beasts and this destructive, destructive nature of the horseman is restrained. It says that that only one quarter of the earth is impacted, but it nonetheless has this picture that it's it's a terrible reality that we know does happen throughout human history. And even if one believes that these things will be experienced in greater measure in the days to come, that this is talking about a future reality that's to come, there is no doubt that this happens throughout human history as well. And not only so, but Christians, if you know church history, have also experienced these things by conquering kingdoms and people violently turning against one another and experiencing famine and disease. This is an experience that is true of the church throughout time as well. So here's the point of the vision thus far. If you're getting wrapped up into this vision with John and you're seeing these terrifying horsemen emerge, but one of the things that keeps on repeating, and this is important for the reader to understand, is that the lamb is the one opening the seals and God is calling the riders forth. And what this is showing is that God is not blindsided by what's happening in the world, nor have things gotten so out of control that he's powerless to do anything about it. This vision at this point makes it clear that God is not responsible for evil on the one hand, and yet that depravity of this world, and also these realities that we face is not greater than God himself. God is still on the throne, and the Lamb is still unlocking God's judgment by breaking the seals on the scroll. That's how we should be sensing what's happening so far in this vision. But when is God's judgment going to come? And when it does come, who can stand on that awful day? And those are the two questions that come out of breaking the fifth seal and the sixth seal. Let's look at that. Verses 9 through 11, this is with the fifth seal that's broke. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Here we see the vision is still connected to the heavenly throne room that happened and we got to see in chapters 4 and 5. And in this heavenly temple underneath the altar in that temple, there are Christians who have faced suffering and violence that have been described so far. And they're pictured as under the altar to represent that they are in the presence of God and under his care. And these Christians see that this evil and depravity continues to be leveled against their other brothers and sisters who call on the name of Jesus, and they ask from God's heavenly throne room, how long until your judgment will come, God? This is a cry of justice from these Christians. It's a question that Christians often ask throughout history, isn't it? How long? How long is this going to be going on for? When are you finally going to just put an end to the evil and the injustice that's happening? They're pictured as having and being given white robes, which symbolize their purity and righteousness, and they're told to wait, to wait a little longer. And for what? The text says for more Christians to face this suffering and even death. More brothers and sisters will have to faith, face these realities, and, and, and like Christ, they too will experience evil and depravity in this world, and for Christ, that led to the point of death and death on a cross. So, so far, that's not a very satisfying answer. How long, O Lord? Well, we need more Christians to suffer. Not a very satisfying answer so far, right? Raises a whole host of questions, but that is one of the main questions that the text wants us to ask, is how long? And we, at this point in the vision, should feel that with the vision. We should be feeling that with these brothers and sisters in Christ that are pictured here as you look at the world and the church maybe suffering and humanity suffering, that we should be there with them in our hearts saying, how long, Lord, is this going on? And God says, in a sense, that I have my reasons but let's move on to the sixth seal, which includes the second most important question in this text. I watched as the lamb opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens recede like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That is intense. When the Lamb breaks the sixth seal, it unleashes a terrifying description, which pulls from all this imagery of the Old Testament that is used to describe God's judgment. All of creation is in an upheaval at the coming of God's judgment, and the scene of an earthquake is repeated a little bit later when the seventh trumpet is also blown, and then the seventh bowl is poured out, which indicates that every series of seven ends with God's judgment. Verse 15 in this section gives a comprehensive list of all kinds of different types of people that are experiencing exposed to God's judgment, and they're trying to get away. Did you, text, did you notice that? They're, they're encountering God's judgment, and they want to get away. And even the powerful and the wealthy cannot get out of this judgment if they've opposed God and his people. They try to get away first by hiding, and then they cry out for even the rocks to fall on them because they would rather be crushed by an avalanche than face the wrath. Of God. That's how terrifying God's judgment is in that day. So from this experience of terror, they ask, and here's the second question, for the great day of the wrath has come, who can withstand it? Who can stand on the day of God's judgment when God's wrath comes? Who is going to stand on that day? That is the second question. And now the vision is going to move on to answer these two questions. Remember what they are, right? Who can stand on this day, and when will God's judgment come? Those are the two questions, and it moves to this interlude that seeks to answer those questions. And when we get to the interlude, we see that in verses 1 through 3, this pause before we see the last seal broken. Let's look at this. Verses, uh, chapter uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. These four angels are seen as standing on the four corners of the earth, which is the way that scriptures talk about the entire world. That's the way that it talks about it. They're holding back and restraining the devastation, which includes the evil and depravity that was described as as being unleashed with those four horsemen. And then another angel comes into the scene, and he's carrying uh, the seal of the living God. And scholars often think that the seal is a signet ring, which is something that ancient kings would use to seal documents, and by doing so, it would display the king's ownership or the authority over something. And here, the seal is not on a document, but on who? A person, a people. This is the king of kings who sits on the throne, and he is sealing his people. And so this is saying that there are certain ways that God's people cannot be harmed by what is going on. And what is that exactly? They're getting caught up in conquests and civil war and famine and disease. It doesn't sound like much restraint, does it? It still sounds very awful. But the text is going to go on and show us that these people who belong to God, they are protected where it matters most. Let's look at verse 4 of chapter 7. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all tribes of Israel. What is going on here? Who is this sealed group of people? Verses 5-8, through eight, I won't read those, go on to detail how 12,000 people from different tribes or groups in Israel are the ones who are sealed. And these verses read like census data, like if you've ever read, read the book of uh, Numbers, it reads very similarly to the book of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers, the census, da- census data is about organizing an army. Uh, which is probably some of the significance that's being symbolized here. We'll get to that in a minute, just kind of plug that into the back of your head right now. But what about the number itself? Why 144,000? And as we've been noting all along, numbers in the book of Revelation, even if they are literal, carry theological significance. Twelve is a reference to the twelve tribes of Israel, Or 12 can refer to the apostles in the New Testament, and when they're taken together, it it refers to all of God's people throughout time. Also, you have the number 1,000 in the book of Revelation carries the meaning of completeness. So what you have here is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 144,000 meaning, theologically speaking, the complete and entire people of God. Some view this group as Israel's, or as the nation of Israel, others view them as martyrs, or others lump them in with the great multitude described in verse 9. I agree with those who see the 144,000 as linked with this great multitude, but that's debated. In verse 4, John says that he hears the number, and then when we get to verse 9, he turns and looks and sees what was being described by that number, and he sees this. Look at verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, "'Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb.'" And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worship, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this is a multitude of people that no one could count and they're joining in the worship in heaven of God and they're joining together with all these heavenly beings and they're wearing those white robes which again symbolize their purity and triumph. They're waving palm branches and I remember reading that this week and I was like, one week off, next week is Palm Sunday and I could have just managed that uh, schedule a little bit better but maybe this will be a way to help you prepare for next Sunday. These palm branches, like on Palm Sunday, symbolize rejoicing as God's people celebrate God's protection and care. They point to these Old Testament feasts and parties where the same thing was happening. And then the text goes on and gets more specific about who these people are with a Q&A between John and this heavenly being. Revelation seven thirteen. Then one of the elders, one of these heavenly beings, asked me, These in the white robes, who are they? Where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are, are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I am so entertained by this Q&A, by the way. You have John experiencing this vision, right? And the heavenly being asks him what's going on. And he's like, kind of like how we read Revelation, like, I don't know, you know, you should tell me what's going on, right? I just love that moment in the book of Revelation that even John, who's inspired to write this by the Holy Spirit, also is asking for a little bit of help. You tell me what's going on and who these people are. And he says that this is the multitude of people who are victorious and pure because of what? The blood of the Lamb. Christ's death and resurrection has made them conquerors and has made them righteous. And so when they wave these palm branches, they are celebrating the gospel, the good news that God so cared for his people that he sent his son to die on the cross to defeat sin, death, and evil through the sacrifice of his son. And they are also identified as those who have come out of the great tribulation. And that article V means there is something specific in mind. And certainly the details of Revelation are describing the events of that time, the great suffering or tribulation that's happening, not just the four horsemen of this chapter, but all the things that are about to be described in the other sections. And some view this great tribulation as something that has already happened, some view it as something that's going to happen in the future, or that some apply to tribulations or sufferings that Christians faiths throughout time, especially since the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I think this, again, this diverse way of understanding this passage speaks to the power of this book to be, as one commentator says, a story of everything. That we can see, regardless of how you understand these events unfolding, if they have unfolded, if they are unfolding right now, or if they are going to unfold in the days to come, there's, no matter how it shakes out, there's no doubt that it applies to Christians throughout time, that we see ourselves caught up in the vision that's happening here, and we see ourselves asking these questions from the vision as well. And it's pointing to this great theology that all Christians should hold, and what is that theology? Let me try to put all this together now. Remember, in this vision, these Christians have faced persecution, war, famine, division, and death. It sounds like they have been the ones that have been conquered. But this vision is showing the reality that that is not the case. Remember the the numbers, the census data is pointing to maybe that this has been describing God's people as God's conquering army who is sealed by the King of Kings. That's the heavenly reality because on uh, the earth reality it looks like they're being conquered but the heavenly reality is that they are the conquering army. And how this heavenly army conquers is much different than the armies of this world. The powers of this world conquer through force, but God's people conquer through faith. The powers of this world conquer by killing, but God's people lay down their lives. God's army and the followers of of God in this army follow the example of the Lord Jesus, the slain lamb who conquers sin and death and the powers of evil by what? Laying down his life on the cross. And in addition, although they face so many horrible things, including death, they are protected where it matters most. Their faith is preserved by God, and they will not experience God's wrath, but rather his grace. As Jesus taught his followers in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but, not can kill the, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. These are not those who are going to be destroyed by God's judgment. They will stand on that day because they are sealed. And they're sealed by the Holy Spirit, as 2 Corinthians 1:20 says. So for no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes, us, makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He's anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. What is to come? God's judgment and guaranteeing that in that day we will stand on that day of judgment. And one of the things, maybe to step away in application is, I mean, some of this description is obviously most people here have probably not been caught up with this level of wickedness and depravity where you are in a war-torn land and you've been persecuted but for your faith to the point of death. You probably haven't experienced that, but there are elements of this broken, depraved world that Christians always do face, and it creates so much uncertainty in our soul, so much doubt in our faith, and, and, and as, as the call to worship says, so many questions for your tears, right? Why is this so hard? Why is this so painful? And you can feel that. And although the scriptures don't always answer every single question that we might have in those moments of pain and, 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 and suffering, it does answer the most important question, and that is this. Nothing you will experience, Christian, will take away that seal that is tattooed on your soul because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you can take to heaven and stand before the Lord. That's what's being described in verse 15. They are standing before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And there they are, Christians standing before God and enjoying His presence. And once they are in His presence, notice how their experience will drastically change. In the world, they experience hunger and thirst within. And all around, they are beaten down. They experience so much pain and grief and tears from the suffering and death that they face. But now that they are before God and sheltered in His presence, what do they experience? Verses 16 through 17. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who will stand on that day of judgment? Answer, those who persevere in the faith will stand on that day, and their tears will be no more. That's what this vision is saying. But then there's the second question that's still there. When is God's judgment going to come? Let's go to the breaking of the seventh seal to see that. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 8. Then the Lamb opened the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. An angel who had been given a golden censer came and stood before the altar He was given much incense to offer with all the prayers of all of God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it to the earth. And there came pearls of thunder, rumbling flashes of lightning and an earthquake." Here in these verses, you have the transition happening between the end of this first group of seven, of the seal being broken, and then the trumpets that are being introduced into the second uh, set of uh, vision that we're going to see of the seven trumpets. So that's happening, and this transition is taking place in the text. But what I want to focus on here is the opening of the last seal, and Christ opens the seal and there's silence which builds anticipation. Is God going to act? And the the time, about a half hour, means that he acts very quickly. And the scene builds off of what has already been described. When the sixth seal was broken, there's this terrifying judgment that's unleashed from God. And God here is answering the prayers of his people, saying, how long, O Lord? And so from the heavenly temple, an angel goes to the altar, with this golden censer, with the prayers of all God's people being described like incense before the one on the throne, and he hears their prayers. And then the judgment is described as the angel taking that container, filling it with fire, and throwing it down to the earth. And this is when God's ultimate judgment is unleashed, described in very familiar terms from the Old Testament. There's thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And God is hearing the prayers of his people for justice and judgment. And if you think that these descriptions of God's judgment are terrifying, wait till some of the ways it's described later in the book of Revelation. We'll get there. But let me end this way, all right, because that was still a lot. All right, I hope, I hope you all need, you probably need some coffee or a nap or something after that. But let me, let me try to land the plane on this a little bit, all right? In light of this vision, it's very important for Christians to remember that they are sealed, And there are ways that we practically do that. The global church practically does that. And it's especially through what baptism and the Lord's Supper points to. It points to this deeper, heavenly reality that we are sealed by God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are tangible reminders of the reality that we are sealed by God. They're described as ordinances, which means that, the, that this is given by God and instituted by Christ, but sacraments is another way that the Lord's Supper and baptism are described, which means that they are visible signs and seals. As the answer to question 43 in the New City Catechism says, quote, the sacraments or ordinances given by God and instituted by Christ, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper, are visible signs and seals... That we are bound together as a community of faith by his death and resurrection. By our use of them, the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us. Brothers and sisters, you are sealed. You're going to be reminded of that again at this table. And as I've been preaching throughout the season of Lent, we also are going to do some baptisms on Easter Sunday where people will declare publicly a heavenly reality that they too are sealed by the promises of God in Jesus Christ, where we are reminded of what is really true, that even though you are going to face a whole lot of things throughout your life that are going to be challenging and hard and bring tears to your eyes, the reality is this, that one thing will never change in your life. And it's what baptism and what the Lord's Supper point to that you are sealed by God in heaven by the blood of Jesus Christ that is being guaranteed by the Holy Spirit up until this day, until the day you are called home. Amen, brothers and sisters. Amen.